Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world. Hope you are having a great day. Sitting next to Jeffrey Harvey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. I'm sipping out of my Focus Compounding mug, and rumor on the street is, is that we are going to make a bunch of those in the near future for people. Okay. Uh, listening. So be on the lookout for that. Probably the best place to get information on that is I'm going to tweet out about it at Focus Compound. If you're listening on the YouTube side of things, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on the podcast side of things as well, uh, the subscribe button goes a very long way for Jeff and myself. Helps hack the algorithm, both on the podcast side of things and on YouTube. Uh, and so in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about defense in depth. Okay. And thinking of different ways to sort of improve the margin of safety. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've done a lot of chatter about, you know, the Davis double play or different ways that you can make money in a stock, you know, whether it's, you know, price appreciation, a multiple re-rating, a dividend. And these are things that you always think through um, when investing in a company, you know, different ways that you can, um, you know, sort of hit your IRR, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's almost like doing a pre-mortem. Right. What could go wrong? How can we hit this return? And then, you know, thinking backwards or, you know, I guess you could think about that's sort of like inverted way of thinking about it. Um, but take me through when you're first looking at a stock. So you've come to the point of, okay, I like the business a lot. I would like to own it. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's trading at a price that you think is cheap. So two thirds of what you think it could be worth. Right. Okay. Um, what are some other things that you know, would just be sort of the cherry on top of the value cake that would make you even more excited about investing in the business? Like the business aside, right? Mm-hmm. The business aside. Let's just talk about price. Right. So there's two ways that this can happen. One, I'd say, is more like we could talk about like strong point defense, like having one thing that you're relying on entirely. Um, and those can be great. The And those are often things that have the best defense of all. But they're uh, could be rarer. And you have to have a lot of confidence in that. So you can have confidence in one thing that you are sure is not going to collapse, right? So basically, you could have confidence, Buffett could have confidence buying into Coca-Cola. The brand would not uh, collapse as, as something that had a lot of value. And so you don't need other sorts of defenses that way. But the other thing that you can have is what we talked about, defense in depth, which is an idea of uh, multiple compartments of defense um, that could make that you could get value from. So the Peter Kundal book is a really good thing for reading for that kind of stuff. But some examples of things I've done in the past are like um, buying Japanese net nets where they were selling at less than net cash and also their operating business had made money every single year. So the combination of those two things means that the, there's a positive value on the business and it's a cash box. Now, if you just buy a cash box, things can go wrong in ways that you won't get your money back. And if you just buy a business at a certain PE, right, it, it may contract. But if you're able to buy like five of these different things where in each case there's a cash box and a business attached, you tend to do really, really well. That was Ben Graham's experience. That's been my experience. So that's one example. Mm-hmm. Um, George Risk was a very similar one to that where I bought into a stock in which I bought for a little less than in cash and I thought the business was really good. Um, and... There, you know, and that's as an example, I went on and owned that stock for six or seven years. Um, and even in a time when the market went up a bunch, it actually did about the same, right? So even that in terms of like when we talk about dead money or something, because you're buying at a price that's so low, um, you often get fairly good returns and things. So that 
is something that I do all the time when looking at things. Uh, an example we've used a few times now, which is an example of how that defense can come in handy and you don't plan for it, is Virtu Motors. So accounts, we manage own stock in Virtu Motors and a lot of people would talk to me about it. I'd talk to them and whatever about UK car dealers and I was more interested in Virtu than some of the others. And the reason why is because it basically hadn't drawn on various things of credit that it could use. So it owned about half of its land, uh, the land portfolio, you know, half of the dealerships. Um, it hadn't really borrowed anywhere like um, other car dealers do against their used car inventory, which mm -hmm. is a lot of inventory. And so basically you had this opportunity where um, you had stuff you hadn't borrowed against as compared to a company which is borrowed against everything. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is with that, with the, that we're talking about is yes, your price to earnings can be fairly low or whatever. So we bought that at a mid single digit P right. And that's kind of how you can get the return. But also if ever they leverage up, your return is going to be really good. Right. That's the way of thinking of it as positive, which is usually how people think of it. They go, okay, what's my upside here? Sure. But the other way is to look at it at the downside, which is if anything happens and COVID happened, um, there's a way for them to borrow money without diluting me, without basically borrowing it in the sense of like putting on, um, having to do basically things similar to bonds, you know, and stuff like that. Instead, it was something that was all about um, using borrowing capacity that others had used that they hadn't used, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the idea. And so you have different ways in which you can uh, not have your value of what you invest in impaired, which is more the way I think of it. Instead of like how many different ways can I make money, it's more like um, what can go wrong and I can still do okay. And and you know that from some things where I've talked about stocks before where I said, okay, well, if you're paying um, six times earnings or something for this stock, then it can lose a third of its earnings power from something and still be cheap. Like we talked about psychometrics or something. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing where obviously they're going to lose some earnings power. They're going to yeah. lose some free cash flow. But on the other hand, does the price already reflect that? Because you're already a lot cheaper. And I think the hard part about that, though, is if you're already in the stock, you may not think about it like this, but I know the way that other people think. If the stock immediately drops on that news, even though it's already basically priced in by the way it's trading today, yeah. a lot of people assume that it's a lot worse than it really is or the stock gets cheaper. Sure. You know, so that, that can make it harder for some people. Do you also yeah. think about, for example, you know, I think most investors they say, okay, this stock is, you know, trading at thirty bucks or thirty, you know, dollars per share. We think it's worth, you know, forty or fifty. That price difference is my margin of safety. I think one difference that you think about it as well in relating to the price. I know we were talking about, you know, the solvency of the business before, mm -hmm. their ability to borrow, leverage up, et cetera. You may think about it, okay, yes, it's trading at thirty dollars. It could be worth, you know, fifty to sixty dollars or forty to fifty dollars, but it's also trading at, you know, it generates free cash flow to 12% free cash flow yield or something like that, where if the stock right. does nothing over the next five to 10 years, you're going to get all that build up in cash in hopes that, you know, that only improves your margin of safety. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, that's a question that people have asked about uh, stock we own, NACO. And I said, like, how much has the value of it deteriorated over the time that you've owned it and whatever, because um, they're presumably will lose a major customer and, you know, um, you know, it'll take a while to shut down. But um, the truth is not really 
that the value is that different. Mm -hmm. And that surprises people. But the reason why the value of the stock isn't tremendously different is because you went from a situation in which you had some debt and stuff and, um, and you had cash and the you didn't have a large you didn't have a large amount of sur- truly surplus cash okay and then you went to a position where you actually had a lot of that versus the stock price and so what happened is that if you build up free cash like you said over a period of a few years then actually that can be as much as you know the value that you would have gotten from uh, from a customer that way or something so for instance if you had a dollar of earning power uh, and now you have $15 of, uh, per share or something, and now you have $15 in cash per share. Well, those are basically the same thing. If mm-hmm. you've, you know, just as if you had sold the business off or something and gotten 15 times uh, free cash flow or something, that's basically the same thing. And so, yeah, uh, if you build up free cash flow that way, then obviously, and by the way, that's a reversible that way too. That's why I always point out to people like, if a company has a lot of cash, you have to be careful because, I mean, not to undervalue it, because, of course, it can just go out and buy something that has that earnings. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, right. if you have $15 in cash per share, you can go out and buy, presumably, something like a dollar in, in earning power that way. So if you, you don't want to bias yourself too much to being like, oh, I don't count the cash, I don't care about assets, but I care about earnings. Earnings and assets have to be translatable back and forth at some level. And so, you know, um, and they will be the moment that they actually do it. You know, mm-hmm. when companies do pile up a lot of cash, if they then go out and buy a good business, then suddenly the stock goes up. But really, the assets are always there the same, you know. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite articles that you've written before, and I actually tweeted this out, uh, tweet this out uh, last week I did. You were talking about how to handicap a stock okay. and like this whole idea of what is the right multiple to pay for a stock. Mm-hmm. And in that article, you were talking about assuming that the stock when you sell is going to be at a market multiple. Okay. Right. Um what if the mark the the multiple doesn't re-rate, for example, or you know what if this, this is the biggest complaint from people? Yeah, mm-hmm. in my experience, the you have to evaluate the business as best you can, get an honest idea of what you think the business, the enduring business quality is, what the real inherent qualities of the business are, the industry it's in, its position in the industry, whatever, and give it the appropriate multiple for that. You have to ignore what the market is currently valuing it at. Mm-hmm. And this is my biggest complaint with something like, I mean, I like things like Value Investors Club and stuff, yeah. but the thing is basically what it, you just look around to what are they valuing other stocks like this at today. So if all bank stocks are trading at one times book today, you use one times book. And if 10 years ago, they were all trading at, uh, I mean, if 15 years ago, they were all trading at two times book, then you would have used two times book. Mm-hmm. But should you have done that? And I think that some of the best ways to make, in my experience, some of the best ways to make money actually have been the most reliable have been to correctly judge the value of a business at a time when others aren't that way. So, and that, but does bother some people because we bought into a stock, um, computer services. Mm-hmm. Uh, it operates under the name CSI usually, but the, it's a, uh, over the mark, uh, over the counter stock that is really big and is in the same industry as other core processors. So people would know like Jack Henry and stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's like those Pfizer. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, we bought it at, you know, you adjust for some things as a tax thing or whatever, but basically bought it at 15 times what I thought a normal earnings would be. Okay. Um, so P of 15. I did that because I thought a core processor type thing should trade at more like a P of 25 or something. Now, that's not necessarily just based on what other core processes are trading at. I wouldn't do it if it was just what they're trading at. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do it on how high quality the business is and how much I like it. We, it's similar in a way, though not as growthy, as uh, OTC markets, which we've talked about more, um, and the economics of that. 
So the economics and the growth and stuff in OTC markets is a bit better. But still, you'll notice that there are businesses where I say it should be worth 25 times earnings or something. And I don't use 15. Does that come from your judgment, though, of looking at high-quality companies? Or yes, is it more it's so from like the, a, from a math perspective? It's, it's from a math perspective. Okay. But it is judging the quality of the of the businesses. So it, for a business to continue to trade at a high multiple and stuff, it should have the ability to reinvest its capital and has to be at high rates of return. Otherwise, that shouldn't be happening. So if it doesn't have a high rate of return, then I wouldn't value it highly that way. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes that means I'm very different value than other people would have. And... You, maybe you could sell the company for something like that. Like I've talked about, um, I've looked at some software companies that don't make any money really. And some of them are trade at five, six, seven times sales. Mm-hmm. Presumably, I guess you could find someone to buy them for that. I mean, that's what they trade. That was what these companies trade on the market. And I guess there are acquisitions done at those levels. So if I knew more about the software business, maybe I would know those things could be sold at those values. But I would never put those values on them. I would never put those sorts of things because they don't have they don't have any hopes of having 60 or 70% operating margins that I can see. So I wouldn't value them that way, you know? So let's break this down. Let's give a blueprint. So uh, a company that is worth 25 times earnings, I know this is sort of pie in the sky type of stuff. What are the qualities? Like, what do the operating margins look like? We've talked about before how you don't need, you know, 15 to 20% top line growth. I mean, what does it look like? 6% or more a year while using no additional capital. Okay. That would make it worth 25 times. So 6% in free cash flow, earnings, all of it. I mean, we've talked about that all the time. Free cash flow over time. But in any one year or any three years, it doesn't matter. I mean, if they're growing free cash flow by 10% a year, but they're growing sales by 2% a year, then you've got to really evaluate it because something's wrong. Sure. Something's off. But if everything, let's have a hypothetical in which everything, sales, uh, free cash flow and stuff are all growing together at 6% or more a year, then yes. If it grows at 6% or more a year while also being able to pay you 4% in free cash flow, then that's what it's worth. It's worth 25 times earnings. Mm -hmm. And that math is pretty simple that way. It's pretty simple for companies that use no additional assets. That's the warning I want to give for people. There's a reason I think people know that I use like Omnicom as an example or OTC markets. It's because of mathematically they're very easy examples. I can also do very easy examples with insurance companies or banks, which have constant, if they choose to, leverage ratios. And also the business is all done in cash. It's much harder to come up with should a asset heavy business, what's the right uh, multiple for a railroad? That's actually really hard to do uh, because it's kind of complicated. They are replacing things in you know, modern dollars when it's on the books of the old dollars. Um, they they do have to put in a lot of money to be able to grow that way. Um, those are trickier. Or we talked about Stella Jones, mm-hmm. uh, companies like that. They can be good and they can earn money, but as you take assets into it, it's more complicated. Whereas if you said value Facebook, that's actually relatively easy to do if you could tell me what the growth rate will be for a long time, you know, mm-hmm. because it doesn't have to put in more and more assets. Yeah, because you used to do blind market or blind stock valuations all the time through mm-hmm. your blog. Right. You know, so I was always curious how you sort of think about that. So if you see a company though, that's, you know, growing sales by 6%, returning 4% to you in some form, mm-hmm. is it really from there, you know, trying to understand what allows the business to do that? Is that because like talk about like OTCM, for example, or CSI right. industries, there's a lot of qualities in that business that allow it to, you know, sort of earn those type of returns, which makes right. it more comfortable for you to pay a higher, um, you know, a higher valuation ratio ratio today. Because we get a lot of people that you have said that you, generally speaking, it's a rule of thumb, you don't want to pay more than 15 times. Um, oh, is that true? Yeah. Huh? 
Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. yeah, 15 times, you know, earnings and stuff like that. But there's times when you have, but there's differences in those types of companies that have a lot of you. So CSI Industries, even though we paid I, 15. I don't, I'm trying to think. I'm not sure that there's any time I've paid more than 15 times what I thought earnings Okay, were. but what about that's OTCM? A, okay, so that is true that we did pay more for OTCM. That's one example. Although we did, but it's not a lot more than what I think their their actual normal free cash flow uh-huh. is, which we could get into. But yeah, we did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of one. Okay. So what allowed you, you know, the comfort, I guess you could say, to make those purchases? Is it the fact that... That was that- the least comfortable. Okay. So that was an objectionable price to me. Okay. I like the business. We did it. Um, but that is the most I'll pay for business is what you saw with OTCM. Okay. So there was something about that business that allowed me to pay the most I'll basically ever pay for business. Okay. And then what about CSVI? So we paid roughly 15 times right. after tax earnings. Mm-hmm. I think the business is growing. What they would be once the tax cut happened. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. The business is still growing five to 6% per year. Right. Has incredibly high customer retention rates, long-term contracts. There's a lot of qualities that allowed it you yep. know, the ability. So that's probably what made you a lot more comfortable. And I guess you sort of had this other thing when, you know, getting back to, um, you know, sort of like the defense part of it, yeah. right? Um, all the competitors were trading like 40 to 50 times. Earnings. Right. So yes. And, and not only that, more importantly, the four biggest core processors in the U S of which computer services, the fourth are all publicly traded and have all been fantastic stocks for decades. All been hunter baggers plus. Uh, yeah, so they've all been terrific stocks for like 50 years or basically since they started. So that is a hint, and I've said that before about industries and stuff, if they produced billionaires, if they produced fortunes, if they produced hunter baggers and stuff, then that is a hint that industry is really good. Like people argue about whether an industry is good or not. Well, if there's, you know, if, um, if they created fortunes over time, basically it's the best indication you have that an industry is mm-hmm. good. Now, sometimes only, there's only a few winners in an industry, you know, uh, is operating systems a good business? Uh, for one <laughs> company it was, for everyone else, not really. But, um, but it does create a mega fortune for someone in there. So it gives you a hint that it can be. Um, yeah, so in terms of the defense and depth thing, I think the important parts are one, having a, re- and I've said this many, many times, I, I really think that 50% of the valuation, of the decision to buy a stock, maybe not the valuation, is the industry that it's in. Yeah. Um, and the other 50, and the other 50% is the the business itself, especially the business model itself and its position in the industry. Uh, but that is true. So, and I think that is a defense and depth concept that's hard for people to understand sometimes. Uh, as an example, let's take a cement plant or something. If it's not being run the best in the world, I'm still kind of willing to buy one if it's at a really cheap price versus its capacity and stuff because someone in the industry can take it over and run it right. Mm-hmm. So I would be open to that. Um, th- you know, There are assets like that. And it's not just that. It's lime things and it's whatever things. Industries where I feel that it's predictable enough that way and that someone could do that. There are other ones where it somewhat similar i mean um like to i talked about virtue motors before virtue motors if it was a retailer with the same economics and stuff in a more um uh in an industry that i felt was more uh i don't know how to put it a more difficult part of retail a less reliable part of retail clothing than um yeah than than car dealers I just have a feeling that car dealerships that we could get into it and stuff but that in general under different um, management stuff could be run well enough. Mm-hmm. So I liked Virtu and the management and all that, but I'm just saying that there's a certain value to a 
somewhat successful or whatever Volvo dealership in a certain location that someone should be able to own it. And in fact, at some point Volvo will say, someone's got to own this Mm -hmm. and you know, like you got to get out and this, you know, has to get in because, um, they need it. And so it has a certain value. And to some extent that's true, even when, if we talk about banks or something, right? Mm -hmm. So if let's say you took a bank and, um, they end up with poor management eventually on the lending side and stuff. That's really bad. They could ruin things and whatever. But if they have this amazing deposit base from the previous generations of who was running it and stuff, then actually that has a lot of value because it could be sold to another bank, sure. basically. And so that has an enduring value that way that you have that kind of um, defense and depth that we're talking about, which is a very Ben Graham concept. Mm-hmm. He liked something where there was both some earnings protection and asset protection. And that's the thing I think people overlook. What he talked about was like buy a low PE stock, but buy a low PE stock that's also a net net. Don't buy a net net that's never earned any money or anything. And don't just buy a low PE stock that has a really high price to book value, Mm -hmm. right? Because we get, people talk to me about those kinds of things all the time, where at this moment, because there's like a, a shortage of something in their industry or whatever, they're suddenly earning a 40% return on equity. But you have to understand that, I, I don't know if it's a value stock if you're paying like a six times earnings, but you're paying four times book. Sure. You know, it might be. And vice versa, if you're paying half of book, but you're actually paying 15 times the best earnings it's ever had in its history, I don't know if that's a value stock. That might be slightly a value stock, you know, but it's unclear. It's kind of like the whole buy on the balance sheet and sell on the income statement. Right, exactly. And you can I, you can have a lot more confidence with that if you know that other things in the industry that are the same assets are productive, Okay. right? Mm-hmm. So if you know that the average car dealership earns a 10% return on equity, mm-hmm. then if you're buying at half of price to book, yeah. then you're in a pretty good position. Or could be banks or could be insurers or whatever if you're paying a small fraction of what others would earn on that then in different hands you know you could have defenses that way uh-huh what are some other things so we talked about price a lot yeah and then on the business side of things you talked about you know maybe the ability to leverage up right staying solvent capital mm-hmm. uh, the company's general thoughts to capital allocation so they're not going to dilute me right. what are some other things that only add to the margin of safety okay the number one would be how successful is a really bad business in the industry? Mm, <laughs> the the point, best yeah. industry is one in which I think they're kind of run a little incompetently and whatever, and they're still earning their cost of capital, basically. Oh, so, business so wonderful, any idiot can run it. Right. Yeah. So is the fourth or fifth player in the industry who's made a lot of mistakes and stuff still earning their cost of capital, or they like managing to lose money every year and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And so in some of these, they're not terrible, that I mentioned before and stuff. So actually, there aren't that many owners of um, of the actual asset that they could own other things, but of like actual cement plants or actual, um, uh, you know, or, or actual car dealerships or whatever that are managing to lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, they can at some points lose some money and stuff, but usually not. I mean, railroads and supermarkets and stuff historically are a good example they go bankrupt because you put too much debt on them and stuff usually they don't actually manage to run them so badly that they actually lose money on an operating basis or like we talked about cruise ships yeah uh, cruise lines so why can they borrow money and stuff now to some extent it's because if i look back at the last 10 or 20 years for the major cruise lines that exist i don't see where they lost money on like an ebit type basis right Mm -hmm. so that is just a lot safer to borrow money than something else. like And same thing, like I said, like a supermarket or something. So COVID supermarkets are doing better from it, not worse. Yeah. But if something had happened that suddenly people couldn't buy food for a few months or something, bankers and, 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 and um, 
people who buy bonds and stuff would still be willing to lend to supermarkets because they have a very long history of not losing money before interest payments, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an industry like that where almost everyone who's been in the industry a long time has one of the leading positions is able to stay solvent throughout a cycle and stuff, then that's a pretty good situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's like we talk about advertising things and stuff and people ask which one's the best one and stuff. The truth is the worst advertising agency is in less of a likely position to lose a lot of money than the best company in some industries. Now they may not be able to grow and stuff that much, but they're really unlikely to actually lose a lot of money and to end up like, you know, not being able to pay their debts and stuff. Mm -hmm. What if the business doesn't have a ton of competitors? Like what if it's like a, a Facebook or a Amazon, for example, or, right. you know, or let's say like a, a zoo plus. Sure. Those are the complicated ones. Cause they go against the defense and death concept mm-hmm. in a sense is all or nothing. So it's a strong point defense thing. If you're completely convinced there's no way that they'll ever lose their position. That's yeah, like great. what if they own the whole market essentially? Right. But if anything ever happens that they don't own the whole market, you'll lose a ton of money in the stock. Mm-hmm. So if anything ever happens that, um, I mean, take Google or something. If anything happens at some point where YouTube has 50-50 market share with someone else, or the Google search engine is 50-50 market share with someone yeah. else, that's a great position. You own half the world. The stock will have performed terribly for you because it'll be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because in terms of the multiple that you paid and also because of the huge decline yeah. in what you had. And so that does happen in some things. And you can be wrong in that. I mean, you can think that, oh, you know, Kodak or whatever will always have great um, uh, market share and things, and then eventually it doesn't. Yeah, but I think generally um, those are the two opposite sides of things. Those are the ones in which you have to be either completely convinced the wide moat type things, mm-hmm. and then there's the other ones which are how will this business be if it's a little worse competitive position? If it's a little worse, I mean, when I talk about the um, defense and depth thing, the things I think about are margin of safety in the stock price, right? Mm-hmm. Good industry, good company, good. So let's go down right? right margin of safety. So two-thirds two-thirds or less of like an average type price Mm -hmm. so i would say like that's why you want to pay 10 times for an industry you're sure is worth more than 15 times that Mm -hmm. kind of thing yeah we talk about the industry so what's the competitive position it has been a hundred bad better than most industry okay better than most industries um management right is management better than most and then um and then if you have those those three uh, those uh, four things, excuse me, there's also the, the company's position in the industry. Mm-hmm. Then in a sense, you could lose some of them and you still work out okay for you, right? So if it's a if it's a um, better retailer than most, okay, can you still do okay in the stock if it becomes simply an average retailer? I like the idea of buying into a company with great management, but honestly, when I look at them, I say, am I still paying a low enough price if? tomorrow they're replaced by a mediocre management Mm -hmm. because then it becomes more defense for me that I have a great management. Yeah. But I don't ever want to buy a stock on the assumption that I have to keep this great management in there because then you don't really have much of a margin of safety. You're actually counting the management twice in a sense, Mm -hmm. you know? So same thing with the, with the industry. Although I like a bit, one thing that's a little tricky. So I'll give an example here, like Costco, right? So Costco is a great retail, a great business. But one thing that's scary about it is if you ever pay the prices that stock is traded at, if it becomes simply a above average retailer, yeah. you'll lose a tremendous amount of money. Because you paid a high enough price. Right, because you the, paid such a high price versus what competitors are trading at. So that's what I consider not defense in depth. That's strong point where it is, 
there's just, I'm completely convinced that the culture and stuff at Costco is going to stay the same forever. And, you know, and the same thing could happen with banks. It could happen with insurers. You know, when I would um, write up like progressive or something, you have to understand that when you do that or frost as a bank or something, when you do that, you are relying on the situation will never get as bad so that they're totally mediocre because the price that progressive stock has traded at has always been too high mm-hmm. versus an average um, auto insurer. It's been at the level of what you should only pay for like a Geico or a USAA or something like that, not for your average one. And the same thing with banks, you know, with Frost and stuff. When I wrote that stock up, basically I was saying it can't get into a position as bad as um, as your average bank is. If it's just an average bank, then of course you have to pay an average price to book. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the Focus Compounding Podcast. We hope everyone uh, enjoyed the episode. If this is the first time you're tuning in, make sure you hit those subscribe buttons, pumping out five episodes a week, having a lot of fun doing it. And we're definitely super thankful for all the support. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.